Great to see you here today. My name is Matt, lead pastor here at Anchor Church, part of the Erskineville Gospel Community, and so good to be here at Enmore. I, I don't know about you guys, I, I love meeting in this venue, and, and I, the, thing, the reason I love it is because it fills me with faith and vision for the future. And I just want you to picture this. Imagine this room full of people worshipping Jesus. I don't, what's the capacity of this place? 2,000 people, 1,500 people? I don't know, like every single seat in this room full of people worshipping Jesus. Now, church, do we believe in a God who can do that? Of course we do. In fact, we worship a God who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. God can fill this room and more. And so I want to encourage you to pray a bold prayer this week that God would do just that, fill this room and more, whatever He sees fit to do. That is, as Brad mentioned, our hope and prayer for our church and our city that God would do an incredible work of transformation and revival here. So it doesn't sound like anyone's excited about that. Is it just me? Good. You should be. You should be. Maybe you're still recovering from your post-batchy blues this week and just devastated that Nikki didn't win and you can't get over that. I mean, my social media feed was full of poor Nikki hashtags on Thursday night. It's tough, right, for some of you. Our prayer team's going to be at the back if you're still wrestling with that. They'll pray for you that you would stop watching The Bachelor. And... Nah, they'll... Hey, thanks City Light for serving us. So great to have the City Light team here with us. And some of the songs that we've been singing for the last couple of years, these guys have written and it's been a real blessing to have them with us today. So thank you for, for serving us. Hey, today um, it's going to be fun, right? Because we're talking about gender, roles in marriage and slavery. Yes, this is right. So it, look, if you want to be liked today, in fact, if you want your church to grow, this is the stuff you just don't talk about. But here at Anchor, we believe that the Scriptures are true. We refuse to believe the lie that we're wiser than God. We let God speak for Himself on these matters. And so we don't just skip the hard bits because they're hard. We want to address them. We want to let God speak for Himself. So I'm going to attempt to do a lot of stuff in a shorter space of time today, so please track with me. Um, but my, my attempt today is to show you how real Jesus is in the everyday stuff of life, from your family to your marriage to your workplace to your parenting, all of the ordinary, mundane, everyday things of life. Jesus is real and important to all of those contexts. Now, if you're here today, if you're a guest, if you've never been to church before, if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, then let me just say a couple of quick things as a bit of a caveat before we get into this. You need to know a few things about us as Christians, about what we believe. The first is we believe that God is real, that He's alive and that is of significant and profound importance to our worldview and how we think about our lives. Secondly, we, we approach the Scriptures, the Bible, with a degree of respect because we believe that this is God's Word to us, that He's spoken it to us, that this is um, the, the best way that we can live our lives in light of the God who has created us. And thirdly, we believe that everything that comes from God to us is for our good. That's His intent. That God's intent is not that we would be miserable, but that we would be joyful and that we would live life to the full. And so with those things said, as, as we approach some of the things in this, this passage I'm about to read, just be mindful of those things. If you're not a believer, we're on different worldviews. We're on different planets at times, and that's okay. 
the conversation we would love to have with you is, is God real? Is He there? Right? We, we don't necessarily want to start the conversation around sexuality and marriage and slavery because they're the X, Y, Z of the Christian faith. We would rather start at ABC of the Christian faith. Like, is God real? That's the conversation we'd love to have. But hey, you're here today. You get this message on marriage and slavery. So I'm going to pray. If you've got a, a Bible, why don't you open it up to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to uh, finish out the chapter there, as Brad mentioned before. Uh, we've got a couple of, two more weeks left of this uh, series all about Jesus and uh and then we're going to get on to some other fun stuff to come up in a few weeks' time. So Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen behind me. I'm going to pray because I need help and I think you need help. And we're going to look at this part of God's Word together. So join me as I pray. God, we thank You that You are real, that You're there. We thank You that You have given us Your Word and that You desire good for us, Your people. God, we pray now as we sit under your word, that we would sit under it as our authority, that we would come trembling at your word, that you are the God of the universe, that you created us, that you love us. And God, even as we wrestle with really difficult, tricky issues, would you help us, God, to see that you're a God who loves the weak, that you're a God who pursues the broken, that Jesus, you yourself, submitted yourself to death, became a slave that you might set us free. So we pray right now, reveal truth to us this morning. Transform us by your Spirit. Make us more like Jesus. We pray this in His name. And God's people said, Amen. All right, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 says this. You ready? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Right. Last week, Brad reminded us that these verses here in chapter 3 are all about living together in community. What it looks like now that we have this new identity in Christ, this new identity in the gospel, what it looks like to live in relationship with other people. This is a rapidly changing culture as the gospel is preached, as churches are planted, as um, thousands of people across the Roman Empire are getting saved and certain people in ha households are becoming Christians and others aren't. And th there is all sorts of world-changing turmoil that the gospel brings in as it transforms cities. And Paul has this concern for the family unit. We saw that the church has all of these implications of the gospel and so does the intimate details of one's life, your work, your family, your marriage. And so I've titled this sermon, Jesus Every Day, 
Or if you want the ghetto version, it's Jesus Airy Day. I kind of imagine that's how Arnado would have preached it if he was up here with his Brooklyn gangster ghetto stuff happening. But Jesus Every Day. If, as we've already seen through this book of Colossians, that it's all about Jesus, that creation is all about Jesus, that salvation is all about Jesus, that everything in between is all about Jesus, then that surely means that every second, every minute, every hour of every day is all about Jesus as well, including all of the mundane, everyday things of household and family life. Have you ever thought about that? That the gospel, the good news of Jesus has implication across every single sphere. But before we get into some of these verses here, I feel like I need to answer a couple of objections. I don't know if you've heard this said before, or maybe you've got this question yourself. And the question is, well, it seems to me as I read verses like this, that the Bible condones misogyny and slavery. We know those things are wrong. Therefore, we can get rid of the Bible and dismiss Christian faith altogether. I don't know if you've heard that question. Maybe someone's asked you that question. Maybe they've leveled that accusation at you yourself when you've said you're a Christian. Maybe like Matt, you were scared to go on campus and tell people that you believe this stuff because of objections like that. It's a very convenient way to dismiss the Christian faith, isn't it? I'm a Christian. Really? The Bible condones misogyny and slavery. How can you possibly be a Christian? The question is, is that true? Does the Bible condone misogyny and slavery? Is it sexist? Well, I don't think so. I don't think it is. And I think if you read the Bible well and not just proof text and pull things out of context and make them say what you want, I think you'll find overall the Bible's narrative is one of care and support and upholding women and slaves and children in a way that was profoundly countercultural to the first century. And so let me just offer a couple of qualifications. Firstly, let's start with this idea that the Bible is chauvinistic, sexist, and misogynistic. Is that true? Well, no, I don't think it is. And let me give you a couple of reasons. When Paul says there, wives submit to your husbands, right? what does he mean by that? Well, he certainly does not mean that women are less equal to men, that wives are less equal to their husbands. He's already established equality. Come back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul says this. Here, that is in this new community of faith, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What he's saying is that there's no longer any religious distinction between Jew and Gentile. There's no longer any um, ethnic distinction. There's no longer any socioeconomic distinction. We are all one in Christ. In fact, if you go to Galatians 5, where Paul has a very similar listing, he'll list there that there is no longer male or female. We are all one in Christ. And so when Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, he's not saying that she's unequal. It's not what he's saying at all. Women are equal in every respect. They're equal as image bearers of, of, of God. They're equal in terms of being co-heirs with Christ. Right? It's not like the men get into heaven first. Right? Somehow I think that's how our world views the Bible. It's just not the case. It's not that men are more gifted in leadership than women. That's not the case. So when Paul says this, he does not communicate inequality. Additionally, This is not about inferiority, right? Because 
Jesus himself submits to the Father. Jesus, like the one that Paul has just been beating the drum about in Colossians, he, he uses some of the loftiest words about Jesus in all of the Bible. Jesus is not inferior in any way. In fact, so much of what Paul says is that he is the exact representation of the Father, right? He is equal with God, yet Jesus submits himself to the Father's will. And so this word is not automatically dirty and negative. If Jesus does it, it cannot equate to inferiority. Submission is not about obedience. You notice the verses there when, when Paul addresses the children and when he addresses the slaves, he says, obey your parents, obey your masters. He doesn't say, wives, obey your husbands. This is a different relationship. It's on a whole another level. And so when Paul is talking about this, he's not talking about obedience. This is another category altogether. Additionally, this is not forced or coerced. The verse doesn't say, husbands, make your wives submit. It doesn't say that. This is freely offered. Wives offer this submission to your husbands. It's not coerced. It's not forced. It's not a trap. This command does not mean that a woman is trapped in an abusive marriage, right? If that's the case, we ought to be the first to pack your bags and call the police, right? This is not about trapping a woman in, in abuse. Additionally, this is not about a wife following her husband into sin, right? Jesus is her king, not her husband. Jesus is her God, not her husband. And so if her husband says, hey, we're going to do this, she says, no, I'm not going to do that because Jesus is my Lord, not you. This is not about following the leadership of a husband who leads his family into sinful decisions and behavior. And finally, this does not mean ever, it's not even close to meaning this, that a woman cannot think for herself, cannot express her opinion, cannot lead in any capacity in the home or the church or the business world. It's not what this means. I think too much of our understanding of this verse has, has come from either a negative experience, which, which are valid and true and they've been terrible negative experiences, or a horrible application of these verses. What we need to remember about these verses is that um, they form a very distinct pattern. If you've read the Bible uh, you know, or New Testament a couple of times, what you'll notice is that in a number of letters to the churches, very similar passages crop up in Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 and maybe in a couple of other places. You see this, this pattern of what is called a household code. Now, it's not uniquely Christian. There were household codes all over uh, the, the Greco-Roman world that varied according to their culture. But the household code that we find in the Bible is uniquely different to the ones in the culture around it in one very profoundly countercultural and distinct way. The, the Bible's versions of these regulations for families uphold with great dignity and value women, children, and slaves. See, the household codes of the first century were all about emphasizing the authority of the master of the house or the husband or the father, and generally it's the same person in each scenario, of their unequivocal, unquestioned authority, even saying things like the father of a household has the right to scourge or kill his son, right? Even an adult child, right, who's living with his family in his father's estate. 
So all of these cultural household codes serve to emphasize the authority of the father figure in, in, the, in the family. And what Paul does is he doesn't say, well, now that you're a Christian, family doesn't matter. Now that you're a Christian, order doesn't matter. He's, he takes what's good from those things and says, these things are good. They're helpful. Some of these things God has invented. God invented marriage. God invented family. God did not invent slavery. But he invented those first two things. And Paul is taking what is good and he's adding all of the elements of the gospel to that of protection and dignity and value and worth for women and children and slaves. It's interesting, I was reading one um, New Testament scholar, her name's Karen Jobes, and she says that um, she finds it fascinating that what would have been taken by a first century person as profoundly and counterculturally affirming of women, children, and slaves, today we take that to mean negative and degrading and degenerating. We need to understand these verses from the eyes of the person who first read them in the culture and context in which it was written. Paul has a value for family and the order of family that he tries to uphold with all of the wonderful things that come through the equality of the gospel that a woman and a slave are all one in Christ when they go to church and worship Jesus. The men don't get to sit in the best seats because they're superior. There is equality in the church. So when we read verses like this, we don't automatically conclude that Paul's a sexist, chauvinistic misogynist. We need to read them in light of the culture that they were written into. Secondly, slavery. Does the Bible condone Slavery. Now, a lot of those truths that I've just mentioned about women are true for slaves as well. The fact that the household code said, the cultural version of it said that slaves were property and had no rights. And Paul says, masters treat your slaves well. Okay, that brings value, dignity and worth. The fact that Paul has established equality in Colossians 1.11, there is no slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. There is, we are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 5. Those things are, rea- are real and true for the slave as it is for a woman in this scenario. But you might still ask, well, if that's true, then why doesn't Paul tell slave owners to release their slaves and set them free? The reason that the Scriptures don't unequivocally and categorically explicitly deny slavery is because What we see in the first century is a very different form of slavery to the slavery we've experienced in the last three millennia. Very different. And and here are some key differences between first century slavery and 21st century slavery. The the vast majority of slavery in Paul's time was voluntary. Voluntary slavery, that a person would sell themselves into slavery, often for a season, maybe to avoid poverty, maybe to pay off a debt, sometimes even to work their way up the social ladder in much the same way that many of you who are students looking for a job in a career that you really want to get in that's really hard, you, will, you, you know what slavery looks like to a degree. You sell yourself to an internship to work for this company for free for a year and you never get paid and you cannot leave, otherwise you'll never get a job in that industry, right? So some people would voluntary, voluntarily sell themselves into slavery to work for a very significantly powerful person in the hopes that that would progress them in society in their career. So slavery was often, not always, but often voluntary. 
Additionally, slaves, some of them received an income for what they did, right? Some slaves, particularly those who are highly effective working in the business, working in the state, would have received some form of income for their labors. Not all of them did, but all slaves, even the cultural household code, encouraged and mandated that slaves ought to have food, clothing, and a roof over their head. Right? So these people weren't forced to do labor and then sent home with nothing. They were provided for. There were some, maybe not adequate, but some due compensation for their work. Slavery additionally wasn't a life sentence in the first century. Right? The Old Testament has provisions, even if they weren't totally followed out, has provisions for the release of slaves in the 7th and the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. Right, so slavery wasn't a life sentence in the first century. And in fact, we've got a number of examples of slaves who have been freed. If you read the back end of um, Acts chapter 23, 25, you will read an account of a Roman governor called Felix, who was a slave and was then set free and finds himself in one of the most influential and significant positions of power and authority in the Roman Empire, the governor of Rome. So slavery wasn't a life sentence. Slavery didn't mean that you never went anywhere after you were set free. Additionally, slavery was not racially motivated in the first century. You couldn't walk through the streets of ancient Jerusalem and Israel and say, slave, 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 purely based on skin color. There were slaves from every racial background and every class of society in the first century. Very unlike the slavery of the African-American people who were dragged away from their nation and forced to work in the plantations in the New World in America. It did not look like that in the first century. Slaves weren't the lowest on the, uh, the level of the socioeconomic playing field. In fact, the, the person who was uh, on, the, on the lowest level was the day laborer because the day laborer didn't know whether or not he or she was going to get work that day. They had to hope that they would get work, whereas the slave at least was guaranteed that they would have food, boarding, and clothing for themselves and their family. The day laborer couldn't guarantee that. And so slaves were not at the very bottom. They were certainly quite low, but they were not at the very bottom of their society. Slave owners are often encouraged to educate their slaves, particularly those who worked in positions of influence in their estate and business. Many slaves had very significant key positions of authority in the, in the master's estate, like an accountant who would look after all of the money. Right? That's, a, that's an important position for a person who is considered a slave. And so masters would educate them in accounting practices. Slaves performed the, the tasks of tutoring and educating children. They performed household duties, particularly the household slaves. Not all of them, were engaged in manual labor in the fields, working in farms and in, um, in, in industry. Some slaves had very significant, powerful positions of authority in business. And so as you step back and look at the context of the first century, you see that slavery, we hear that word and we think 21st century people trafficking sexual exploitation, right? But as Paul speaks into this culture, he doesn't have that in mind. Now, to be fair, there are examples of slavery in the first century that were horrific and horrible, where people are abused and all of those sorts of things happened, right? That, that's no different to 
our experience today, but the vast majority of what Paul considers slavery here looks very, very different from what we see today. So it would be a mistake to suggest, blanket statement, the Bible condones slavery, therefore we can get rid of the Bible and not bother with worshipping Jesus. The Bible regulates a very different form of slavery to what we see today. So, you still with me? Hopefully I've alleviated some of those initial moments as you read verses like that. How could they possibly condone these things? We need to step back and, and read this from the eyes of the first century. So, um, so a couple of quick other things, sorry, before I get to um, where we're going. Um, if, if you track the history of the opposition to the slave movement of the abolition of slavery, it were Christian men like Newton and Wilberforce who gave everything, their, their money, their political careers to strive for the abolition of the slave trade. Christian men who were motivated by their theology as they read their Bibles and saw the inherent dignity of people made in the image of God that drove them to fight to stop the slave trade. Right? The history of the Christian church has been one where we read our Bibles and acted in love and care for those in slavery. Now, not categorically, not uniformly, right? There was plenty of Christians using their Bible to justify slavery, but they were just doing it wrong. They weren't getting it right. They were taking the Scriptures, misappropriating them, misapplying them. And so um, the, the abolition of the slave trade was fought and won by Christian men. Now, we've got our own Wilberforce and Newton today running the Blackmores Half Marathon. Hopefully they've run, hopefully they weren't injured. But uh, Ruth Shooter and M. Dafter, who were on the stage last week sharing about this, um, reminded us that there are 27 million people in slavery today. Mostly women and children, mostly trafficked for the exploitation sexually or forced labor. And as Ruth reminded us last week, that is not okay and as a church, we have a responsibility to act and do something. And so for those of you who donated towards that last week, thank you for playing a small part. A21 is a global campaign that is seeking to end modern day slavery. It's a Christian organization run by a lady called Christine Kane, who's from Sydney, Australia. And as the church, our theology, our Bibles ought to drive us to action towards this. So... How does Jesus apply to the everyday stuff of life, of marriage and family and work? And that's what I want to spend my time looking at now. So come back to verse 18 with me after having hopefully laid a foundation there that's just calmed you all down a bit. And then I'm going to read that verse again, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, you can read a verse like that and think, it's a bit embarrassing. I wish it wasn't in the Bible. Makes conversations kind of awkward with people. And if I'm honest with you, that's where my head's been at as I've been preparing this message this week. I'm like, I don't want to talk about this. People might not like me. I like being liked. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want this podcast to be taken in and out in the media. Like, and as I'm thinking these thoughts, I feel the Spirit convicting me of something. Now, why do I feel like that? Well, partly I feel like that because all of the heat around issues like this in the church and culturally, but mostly I feel like this because I've misunderstood how God intends this for our good. 
I've misunderstood that this is a reflection of the order of the Trinity. I've misunderstood how this mirrors the relationship between Jesus and the church. And I've allowed my culture to dictate to me that this is negative and bad when in fact it, it doesn't have to be that way. Yes, it can be taken to be misappropriated that way. But that was never Paul's intent. These verses were never, not then, not now, meant to be used for abuse, violence, sexism, and chauvinism towards women. What I think is happening here, and, and if we believe that God is good and the Word is true and that He has His best intent for us, then there is something beautiful and honoring and safe about balancing differences between a husband and wife in marriage that create a marriage that will be flourishing and God-honoring and world-changing. I love John Piper's definition of what this means, of what submission means. He says this, Submission is a divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry that through according to her gifts. Now, that's in the context of the husband offering self-sacrificial love and leadership that she complements that by affirming and respecting and fanning the flames of his giftedness and leadership of the home. When honor and submission and respect are met with love and tenderness and self-sacrificial dying to yourself. That is the fertile soil for a healthy, flourishing marriage. But when there is dissension and manipulation and aggression and passive aggression, and all of those things lead to a marriage breaking down. Paul has concern for the household, for the family. Additionally, every time you read, I'm saying additionally a lot, why am I saying additionally a lot? I don't know. Uh, this command always comes in a pair. You will never read a verse in the Bible that addresses wives and women and doesn't balance that by addressing a responsibility on the husbands. And so the, the husband is to love his wife and not be harsh with her. Now, the nature of this love is profound and unique. Paul could have used words like eros, which is romantic or sexual love or lust. He could have used words like phileo, which is brotherly love and affection and friendship. But he chose to use the word agapeo, which is this self-sacrificial, unconditional, dying to yourself kind of love that is given context in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Husbands, love your wives like that costly love that is willing to lay down your life, lay down your needs, lay down your preferences and serve your wife like Jesus has served us and the church. This is the kind of love that assumes lifelong covenantal commitment to another person that we've seen in the, the, the number of marriages that have happened this year in our church family. And it's only in the context of that healthy dynamic and balance that a word like wives submit to your husbands is ever safe. See, what Paul is calling for here is, is two people wholly and fully giving themselves to another. The wife wholly and fully giving herself to her husband in ways that express who she is and how God has created her. And the husband giving himself fully and wholly to his wife in ways that express who he is and how God has created him to be. But having said that, and, and that, that's the best expression of this, right? We realize that we're all sinful, broken people and these things 
often rear their heads. Men, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we have a proclivity to sulk in passivity, to shirk responsibility and lack of initiative, to respond in anger, to try and control people. Paul is saying it. that's not how we exercise our leadership and love of our wives and families. And women, if you're honest, you know that there's a proclivity towards manipulation, be it emotional manipulation, maybe sexual manipulation. Paul is saying that that's not how a healthy marriage and a healthy home flourishes. We wholly give ourselves to each other. Jesus is interested in even the most intimate details of how you relate to your spouse and partner. You know, I was um, spent 10 years working as a youth pastor in the west, western suburbs of Sydney. And I remember hearing a story of a pastor of a, a church who was a smaller family church who um, would often regularly get up to preach his message on Sunday to the church, talk about Jesus. They would have church. He would go home, get drunk and beat his wife and kids. And somehow it seems that our culture reads these verses and says, mm, that's what's happening. Just so you know, I don't preach here and then go home and beat my wife and kids. Paul never, never allows that sort of stuff to happen. He is intimately, intimately concerned about how we treat our family and our household on Monday morning when we wake up and are tired, how we respond to our children when they make us angry, how we treat our wives, how you treat your husbands. Paul is concerned about healthy, flourishing family units for the good of the church, for the good of culture and society. All right, how are we doing? It's very quiet out there. There's not many amens today, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Secondly, family. So marriage, Jesus is... Involved in the everyday stuff of marriage. Secondly, family, verse 20. I'm not sure I've got much time for this. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Look, I'm not, I'm not going to go too much into this just for, for time, but this is quite counterculturally and psychologically sensitive in the first century profoundly psychologically sensitive to realize the impact of a father and his discipline and his demeanor on his children, right? The world is often messed up because of how fathers have failed to love, failed to discipline, failed to care, disciplined in anger, been aggressive and abusive, and everyone's walking around with daddy issues. And Paul says, that doesn't, that's not how it operates in the family that loves Jesus, I'm not going to say any more there. I want to move on to the final pairing of slave and master, verse 22. Our bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. All right, so let's just go back. We've already established that slavery in the first century is very different to what slavery looks like today. You would never take a verse like this 
and apply it to a young 14-year-old girl in Thailand who has a pimp that is forcing her to sleep with men saying, serve the Lord. Right? You wouldn't do that. Additionally, I don't think we can just automatically take these verses and say, well, some slaves got paid, so it's kind of like the boss-employee relationship today. And, but I think there are certain principles to this that apply to the context of everyday stuff that are relevant for your work and how you would respond to your boss or your employee or your manager. So let me just hit on a couple of quick things here. Work, your work, your nine to five, whatever that looks like, it always has a higher purpose to it. It has a higher purpose than just the job that you do, including if your job is wonderful and life-giving and uh, results in human flourishing and blesses large amounts of people. Even if your job is good for society, there is a double purpose that your job has to it. How much more liberating and freeing is that if you hate the work that you do? That even if you are bored and dying in your workplace, that you have a double purpose of serving, honoring Jesus in what you do that brings value and meaning and purpose to your nine to five. Every person, every worker who has a boss has two employees, two bosses. Your earthly master, as Paul says there, and Jesus, your king. You know, every, every person has something that drives and motivates their everyday activity, the everyday stuff. of your, We've all got things that motivate us, right? Or maybe we've got a mix of different motivations that all work together to drive us and motivate us. Maybe it's that we're motivated by self-interest. Maybe it's that we're motivated by our career advancement. Maybe we're motivated by greed and money. Maybe we're motivated to change the world. Maybe we're motivated to serve people. Whatever motivates your nine to five, whatever motivates your work, we have as believers in Jesus an additional motivation that motivates us to do what we do. That means, that reality means Christians ought to be the most outstanding employees that people can employ. I heard a, a quote, I'm not sure if it's true. I tried to research this and I can't remember where I read it, but I heard a quote that said that Steve Jobs, in his top executive, four out of five of those men were Christians because he knew that he could trust them. Does that speak to a higher motive a higher calling that says, I don't just serve my boss here, I serve King Jesus. Christians ought to be the most outstanding employees that can be employed. We are doubly motivated people. You'll also notice here that Paul is very good at applying the gospel to a context. Now, this is something we've been trying to encourage our gospel communities to do, to be able to speak the truth of the gospel into people's lives, not just give them good news, a pat on the back, tell them to get back out there and try harder, but to remind them of the truths of the gospel that transform their circumstance. And you get a brilliant example of Paul doing that here in Colossians chapter 4. He says to the slaves who have some of them, no hope of inheritance. They've sold their inheritance rights. All of that's gone. They may never get to a point where they've got inheritance that they can pass on to their family. He says, even if that's you, let, re let me remind you of a truth of the gospel. He, he wants to take them back to chapter three, verse one, where he says, cast your minds on things above. Lift, lift your eyes up. Look up as Arnaldo reminded us. There is a truth for you that even if you have no inheritance now, Jesus will reward you. The inheritance is yours. You're a co-heir with Christ. You will inherit the world. 
And so Paul applies the gospel that brings hope and purpose and meaning to what may be a hopeless situation for someone. Jesus is so massive that every corner of life is swallowed up under his lordship. He's so astonishingly magnificent that every second, every minute, every hour of every day ought to be lived under his lordship and for his glory. It's all about Jesus. And it's not just all about Jesus here on Sunday between 10.30 and 12 o'clock. It's all about Jesus on Monday morning as Mondayitis kicks in. It's all about Jesus then. It's all about Jesus tonight when you get home and argue with your housemate or argue with your spouse. It's all about Jesus when you submit to your boss's authority and he calls you to do things. It's all about Jesus in every sphere of life that you can think of. Finally, some of these principles that Paul applies here have this missional impulse to them. Let me take you to Titus chapter 2 where Paul addresses slaves in that context and he says this. Bond servants or slaves, same word, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing, uh, sorry, but showing all good faith With what purpose? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So he's saying this, the way that you work or the way that you, in this context in the first century, the way that you treat or respond to your master, that says something about the Jesus that you worship. The way that you work, not just when your boss is watching you, not just to please him, but the fact that you work to please Jesus even when no one's watching, the fact that you seek to honour Jesus when you could lie, you could steal, you could do this and that. Paul is saying that attitude, as you carry that through your work, that adorns the gospel. It makes the good news of Jesus look good. In fact, Paul says there in that, that word adorn, is the word cosmeo, which where we, we get our English word cosmetic from. Right? And so literally, what Paul is saying is your character and your good works and your good deeds, he's saying they are the of the gospel. That's what he's saying. He's saying these things make the good news of Jesus look wonderful and glorious and good. And so this type of attitude has missional intentionality behind it. Not only are you serving your boss and Jesus, but there are things that you are doing today that could last for eternity because of the impact of your character, because of the impact of your work, because of the way that you carry yourself through that. So tomorrow morning, as the alarm goes off and you roll out of bed and you think, oh, another Monday, the mundaneness of life, the the cycling nature of life that just keeps perpetuating itself. Another day, another dollar. Remind yourself of this. I'm serving King Jesus. Jesus is my master. Jesus is my king. Jesus, in fact, who did the very thing that he's calling us to do. Come with me to Philippians 5, uh, sorry, 2, verse 5 to 11. This is what it says about Jesus. The gospel is a story of a king who submits himself to death and becomes a slave for us. Have a look. 
having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. That is the same word that Paul uses of slave here in these verses. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death. Now that's not the same word for submit, but it's a very similar word with very significant similar meaning that Jesus obeys death, subjects himself to death, listens to death's call and goes to the cross on our behalf. This is the Jesus that we worship. But we don't worship a dead, a dead Jew. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus stooped so low that he would become a slave for you. This is the one who was worshipped by heaven itself, the one with unmatched authority, the one with unquestioned sovereignty, the one who was free to exercise his will in any way he wanted for all eternity, becomes a slave for you. This is Jesus who stoops so low, so low that He would willingly subject Himself to death. I hope you realise that death has no claim over Jesus. He is the eternal King who has no beginning and no end. He exists forever. And this eternal King willingly, obediently listens to death. He dies on the cross. Not only is this the power and the pattern of what it looks like to live a life in light of the gospel, but this is the very substance and heart of the Christian faith that Jesus, the King of the universe, would come and serve you considering your needs better than His own, giving up the equality, the worship that was His alongside with the Father to set you free. Friends, the story of the gospel is that every single one of us is trapped in slavery, we are oppressed to our own sin, our selfish desires, the attacks of the enemy. Every single person needs to be set free. And Jesus has done that by subjecting himself to death, by becoming a slave for you. That, friends, changes everything. Love Jesus, you know that's changed your life and needs to increasingly change your life. Maybe you're here today, this morning, and you realize that that reality means nothing to you. Or maybe that truth is stirring in your heart, and you've been hearing this message about Jesus for some time, and you would like to receive Jesus, the one who has served you and subjected himself to death for you, to set you free from your slavery. The Christian message is one of fullness and freedom found in Christ. Fullness and freedom found in Christ. That is our hope for you today. Not bondage, not oppression, not manipulation, freedom in Christ. And Paul's given us this beautiful pattern that allows us to walk that out in Jesus. Church, we're gonna to respond to this good news, this gospel now in three ways.
The first is that we're gonna worship this Jesus, the King who has laid His life down for us. Second is that our prayer team is available for those who would like to respond by praying. Maybe you'd like to receive Jesus for the first time today. Our prayer team will be up the back. They would love to pray for you. You don't need to say anything. You can simply ask them a request. They will pray for you. And finally, we're gonna respond by remembering Christ's death the obedience that led to His body being broken, His blood being shed that might set us free. To my right and left are two stations with bread and grape juice. This meal is for those of you who love Jesus. We invite you to come and dip the bread in the grape juice and eat it and remember your King who became a slave and died for you to set you free. I'm gonna pray. Jesus, we thank You for who You are, for what you have done, for so radically defining our lives and our world and our families and the everyday stuff of our life. And God, we wanna increasingly walk in the reality of the Gospel. We wanna increasingly be made to look more and more like Jesus in our lives. And so I pray for every person here who is married, every parent, every employee who walks out of this room today, that you would remind them that Sundays and church is not just about Jesus, that every day is about Jesus. And that you're with us by your Spirit, empowering us, filling us, transforming us and sending us out into this city to make a difference, to make the name of Jesus famous. God, we bring all of these requests to you now in His name. And all of God's people said, Amen.